It's Tuesday, November 29th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So I miss Black Friday, Blue Pass Cyber Monday, and don't give a damn about Giving Tuesday. I'm thinking of sitting out misplaced my billfold Wednesday, lease with an option to buy Thursday. And I think I want to cruise, though they need my credit card for some reason, Friday. Those events do loom large. But I did just hear a report about consumer spending, which prompted me to take more action than any two-for-one deal at participating Best Buys. By the way, best by the way, when Best Buy has a sale, aren't they subtly admitting that the item before it went on sale wasn't the Best Buy? In other words, who would do business with a bunch of established liars? They're lying and continue to lie. I trust nobody beats the whiz to this day. I mean, nobody beats them. No wiggle room there. Nobody beats the whiz for all your six-disc CD changer needs. But anyway, here's the study that I was talking about. It's reported uh, by the Wall Street Journal's Josh Zumbrun. It's $9.99, you know, $19.99, $29.99. If you're looking at the last four digits, it's $99.99. That's why you see all these kind of higher-priced electronics that are priced at, you know, $99.99. And, you know, I mean, kind of the, the takeaway that the researchers have studying this is that kind of the more nines you see, actually probably the worse of a deal it is. Daniel Levy, an economics professor at both Emory University and Israel's Bar Ilan University, performed a study, the results of which were, the price ends in nine, ooh, David, it could be a ripoff. Quote, based on years of data from American grocery stores, when items' prices ended in nine, they were on average 18% higher than when those same item prices had different endings. So an item that was $3.99 is 18% higher than if it were $3.98. No, that's not what it means. It means the same items. They put a nine, they slap a nine or a couple of nines at the end, and they feel free to raise those prices. 18%, right? I will say that if the study found that it was 19% higher, I would know to be suspicious because of the study. But 18% higher, that does have the ring of authenticity. This is called charm pricing, and it relies on some mental processes, which can be summarized in the phrase, our brains aren't really that good. We see $3.99, we put it in the three category, not the four category, but we also think that $3.99 correlates to deal, 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 when it doesn't. What I want the researchers to do is a longitudinal study about businesses that begin with multiple A's. Quadruple A upholsterers or AAA Aardvark car service. I mean, if Aardvarks were driving the car, I would pay extra. But clearly, what is going on is trying to game the listings in the yellow pages, which don't exist as a physical object anymore, but the businesses do. They proliferate. So many businesses on the A page, you'd think Fonzie named them. Hey! By the way, we, the savvy consumers, who know not to get duped by the nines or the aardvarks, we are idiots when it comes to SEO. Embed your marketing wizardry within the tiniest bit of code, or just pay Google for a top ranking, and then it's, oh yeah, sure, I'll buy this home kidney dialysis machine. I mean, it was the first hit after I Google searched it. 
And that's science. That's just science. And I also know the kidney dialysis machine is really good because the price ends in a zero. On the show today, I spiel about all the protests in the world, all of them, yes, all of them, and how they have come to mean something different than what they used to mean. But first, Barbara F. Walter is a leading expert on civil wars, political violence, terrorism, and in that capacity, she has spent her entire career looking around the world at violent extremism. She's looked at Iraq and Ethiopia and Syria, but her latest book, titled How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them, takes a look at whether we, the U.S., might be heading toward a civil war of our own. Now, if you've been listening to this show, you know I am deeply skeptical of the idea. So I said, who better to discuss it with than the idea's most prominent and distinguished proponent, Professor Barbara F. Walter, up next. So if you've been listening to the gist, you know, among the topics that I'm most driven by is this idea that we are on the cusp or there is a legitimate threat in America of a civil war. I am not closed down to the possibility. I'm very concerned with the rise of militia groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, and of course, the degradation of civic institutions, election denialism. You know this. I I cover this on the show all the time. But the person, the one figure who really did crystallize and set off this discussion more than anyone, and she did it with empirical data, is Barbara Walter. She is the author of, Barbara F. Walter, she is the author of How Civil Wars Start, and and this subtitle is very small in the book cover, it's really important, and How to Stop Them. Barbara, welcome to The Gist. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And I do say Walter, right, without the S, because I'm sure that's dogged you all your life. My whole life, my whole life. Oh, God. So (laughs) I'll try to put in a nutshell what your basic thesis is based on your involvement in the Political Instability Task Force, which is an advisory panel for the CIA that looked across all kind of the history of the history that they had of civil war conflicts. When a society... Uh, breaks down a little bit. So here are the societies that aren't that prone to civil wars, very flourishing democracies and very clamped down autocracies. But when a society is in the middle zone called an anocracy, a civil war can happen. This is especially true when it slides into the middle zone. So when it goes from one to the other. And then there are militias and ethnic factionalism and other contributing factors that could give rise to the possibility of a civil war. And this is all based on study of almost 500 cases. So let's stop there and you tell me if there's anything that I got wrong or anything really important to add. No, that's actually a very good summary. Okay. So you're on this political instability task force and when it started or when you first joined the task force, which I think are two different dates, but you tell me, the United States was great. We were, you know, right next to New Zealand and Denmark and maybe doing fine and there was nothing to worry about, right? 
Uh, well, I joined in 2018, and we had already seen a little bit of a slip. But but one thing I should emphasize is is the task force, which is um, an advisory board to the CIA. The CIA is not allowed to study the United States. We never talked about the United States. We talked about every other country around the world right. that had some of these similar conditions. But it was ne- we never ever applied our findings to the United States, which is which is really why I wrote the book. So you are, I think. Almost all Americans, if not all Americans, you tell me. I mean, when you would, when, especially in 2018 and maybe a little later, you'd look at other parts of the world where strong men would rise or mm-hmm. where election denialism would take place or where militias would pop up. It must have been very hard not to, I don't know if you were doing this in person or via email, not to, you know, just say, huh, I noticed something like that happening in my backyard. Well, I was actually optimistic probably longer than you might have been. And and I say that because I would go home. Uh, I'm from uh, Yonkers, New York. My, my dad still lives there. I would go home and visit. My dad was born in 1932 in Germany. And so he lived through the rise of Hitler. He lived through World War II. Um, he had been a lifelong Republican. We had a calendar of Reagan in our in our kitchen my whole life. Um, and I I would go home, you know, even starting in early 2016 before the election. And my dad, who's normally pretty calm, was just in a panic. And all he wanted to do was talk about. Um, Trump and talk about what he saw was happening with his party, the Republican Party, and talk about all the parallels. And and he said, he would say, Barb, this is happening here. I've lived through it once. I never thought it was happening here. It's happening here. And I would I would respond, oh, gosh, dad, you know, uh, in the United States is a very, very different place than Germany in the 1930s. It's not going to happen here. And he said, why do you think it's not going to happen here? I said, because our political institutions are strong. Our democracy is strong. Our democracy is so much stronger than whatever they call the Weimar Republic. It's it's just not going to happen here. I was wrong. And and every time I'd go to visit him, it would would just be a little bit worse and he'd be a little more um, scared. And finally, um, I was like, you know something? He's, He's seeing details and he's seeing nuances that that I wasn't seeing. And and I had thought, like many Americans had thought, that the Republican leadership would speak out and would and and would sort of moderate the worst tendencies of somebody like Trump. And they didn't. And and um, and so that is one of the things that you see when when a strong man comes into power is is the leadership around him, the elites around him. Um, you know, it's it's important, you know, if, if they speak out against him, he doesn't go anywhere. But if they don't, um, you, you know, you, you get what we saw in Hungary with Viktor Orban. Right. And uh, I love your dad as a figure and I love Yonkers and I love the <laughs> HBO show, Show Me a Hero. But I think you're right. I think you're still right. I think there was certainly a time for anxiety and there's never a time for ignorance and saying things there's never a time for a binary, right? Things can happen. Things certainly will continue as they had. So I'm glad you investigated it. But, you know, here we are in 2022. Trumpism has been thoroughly repudiated. To jump ahead to ethnic factionalism, maybe we could get into this in more detail. The, uh, this is a weird 
kind of thing, but many more Latino voters, the biggest non-white voting bloc, are voting Republican, which on the one hand is like, well, if Trumpism is the problem, that would be a bad thing. On the other hand, the more the factions aren't arrayed on ethnic lines, that would be a good thing. So haven't we had, even since you wrote the book, a lot of data that would indicate that if we were, if it seemed dangerous that they were, that we were uh, veering towards civil war, it seems a lot less dangerous now. I'd say there's been a little bit of improvement, but not as much as people would like. Again, you know, the biggest predictor that the the predictive model on the task force found for you know high risk of political violence and civil war was this anocracy variable. Um, mm-hmm. You know, countries that have weak democracies, democracies that are in decline, that are unstable, kind of going back and forth between different parties, um, those are the ones that tend to experience political violence. And since Donald Trump left office, there have been no reforms of our political system. <laughs> you know, we've we had a peaceful transfer of power. Trump did leave the White House. A new administration came into the White House and they're adhering to the rule of law. But there has been no strengthening of our democracy. Um, and what that means is that we're America is beholden to an honorable individual being elected and going into the White House and 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 honoring democracy. If we had another person like Trump or somebody who really um, wanted to concentrate power and and to become a strong man, um, our institutions um, are are really still very vulnerable to that. And so one of the things that people like me look at is, okay, are we shoring up our democracy? Are all of those undemocratic elements that we have that would make it easy to backslide back into the um, anocracy zone, like um, the Electoral College, like gerrymandering, like the filibuster, like um, the fact that our parties are in charge of, of um, you, you know, running and counting uh, the votes. Um, these are undemocratic. Like the fact that the AP calls the election. Yes, yes. They all still exist. And and of yeah. course, now somebody who really did want to take advantage of that um, knows how to work the system and play the game so, so that we could very quickly slide back um, down into anocracy. Let's talk about that anocracy score. Where was the United States and where is it now? So in in early 2016 the United States was a as at was at a positive 10. That's the the best um ranking you the best uh number you can get. Um it was downgraded to a positive 8 in 20 um Six, when in 2016, um, international election monitors who go all over the world and monitor elections, they were here in the United States. They deemed the 2016 election free, but not entirely fair. Um, that was in part because of confirmed Russian meddling in the election, but also because of you know shenanigans at the local level um, in terms of of um, making voting more difficult and and um, and you know questioning the vote. And then um, the U.S. was downgraded again in 2019. Um, It was downgraded to a positive seven. Um, That was the result of the executive branch, the White House, refusing to comply with requests from Congress for information and refusing to comply with subpoenas. Um, That might not seem like a big deal, but it's actually quite a big deal because the biggest check on executive power here in the United States, the way our system is designed, is for Congress to check 
the power of the executive branch, the president, and with the president essentially thumbs his nose at requests from Congress, this suggests that that um, check and balance is no longer working. And then we were downgraded again to a positive five. That just put us in the anocracy zone. Um, uh, and we were downgraded um, in December of 2020. That was a result of a sitting president who was refusing to accept the results of an election and was actively trying to overturn those results. Um, we were upgraded again um, in 2020, mid-2021. Um, when This Trump is a roller coaster for me. <laughs> it, but it gives you a I'm, sense. I'm, I mean, cheering. I'm about- cheering that we got upgraded. Yeah. So what are we now? Yes. <laughs> we're at a positive eight. Yeah. Um, but that's, that is simply because we we had a peaceful transfer of power and because we have a new president who is actually um, adhering to these norms of, of good behavior. But um, but the, the institutions are exactly the same as they were in December of 2020. I don't know exactly, and you do, how they make those scores. I would just posit that we did not lose half our democracy from going from a positive 10 to a positive five, which is a 50% (laughs) decline. That never really happened. I mean, maybe you could argue, well, all the rickety structures that were put forth in the constitution by landowning men who had was, were reinventing democracy for the first time since Athens. Okay. They got some stuff wrong and maybe the judges, the raiders were a little too sanguine when they gave us a positive 10, but I don't think that I'm like you talking to your dad. I don't think it was God. This sounds so unempirical and ignorant, but I don't think it was quite that bad. Yeah, that's actually a great, great point. So this anocracy variable is um, is a measure that comes from a nonprofit called the Center for Systemic Peace. The Center for Systemic Peace is one of five um, uh, nonprofits whose mission is to measure democracies around the world. Um, right. every year. I'm an old, I'm an old freedom house guy going back yeah, you're to a freedom house yeah. guy. Yeah. Yeah. Some people are V-dammers, you know? <laughs> yes. Yes. And every one of these nonprofits measures democracy in a different way. And that's actually a good thing. They're, they're just shining their, their light at a different element of democracy. So when you're trying to figure out what feature of democracy really really, really has an effect in mm-hmm. in ensuring peace. You include all of them. And so what's so interesting about the anocracy variable, it was like, no, the only one that really mattered was this particular measure. So freedom, people love Freedom House because it measures um, individual rights and freedoms. That's what it focuses on. Do people have the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, the, the freedom to assemble? Center for Systemic Peace does not measure that. VDEM does not really measure that. Um, what what the Center for uh, uh, Systemic Peace, with its anocracy variable, was really interested in is, was how strong are the constraints on power, and in particular on the president. It's all about how strong are the institutions of democracy. So you could have a, a democracy like the United States, where we, where our freedoms are still quite good. They're quite strong. Freedom House would, you know, give us higher score. Although the U.S. has been declining on the Freedom House scores as well, on the VDA, on every single one, it's been declining. But, but, you know, some of these measures are still quite robust here in the United States. Um, It's the, it's the strength of our institutions um, that, that um, anocracy is, is capturing. Right. And what you're saying is you, uh, the CIA analyst, poured all this data in and they yeah. found that there just wasn't a correlation from F- Freedom House. Might be a great ranking and people might enjoy freedoms. But if we're looking at civil war, it's the anocracy score. Exactly. 
I do want to go back to one piece of methodology about the political instability task force. I yeah. know you studied nearly 500 examples of uh, civil war. What was the exact number? 400? Actually, it's about, it was about 250, 250, oh, 250 major, major yeah. um, armed conflicts. Yeah. So in terms of data, that seems like a lot. It's horrible for the people who experienced it for the most part. It's not a lot of data. Uh, it's not a lot of data points to put into the formula. Did you study or did the task force study where the civil wars didn't happen? Um, let me <laughs> let me give you well, let me give you an analogy. Yeah. The people who study serial killers will tell you, oh, there is a constellation of traits and background conditions that make for a serial serial killer. Abuse, somewhat higher than average intelligence, the dark triad. Yeah, okay, that's those are the conditions. But think about everyone who has those and then doesn't become a serial killer. It's gigantic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So did you take that way of thinking into account? Well, that's the holy grail of methods. Like You have to do that. Um, uh, if you don't do that, it's called selecting on the dependent variable. And, and none of the results that you have are, they're, they're, they're completely worthless as a result. So yes, there are about 250 major armed conflicts. But when you put together the data set, you're looking not only at those, you're looking at every single country around the world irregardless of whether they had an armed conflict or not. And you're looking at them every single year. So um, so the data set is actually quite large. And, and you're looking um, uh, at features like poverty and, and ethnic diversity and anocracy. And, and you're putting those data in every single year in every single country. And then you're, you're looking to see, okay, you know, what, and, and then you do have, okay, you know, in which of these countries did they experience an armed conflict? And in what year did that armed conflict occur? And what variables, um, um, are are associated with that. So no, it's very very carefully carefully done. Um, if if you were to only look at the 250 cases of armed conflict, you would get garbage results. Mm. There is a cost to ignorance, but there is also a cost to vigilance for always worrying about a civil war. Um, I think it weighs on us as citizens. I think some number of us get anxious. And I also think and worry and think that this is true, that the presence of it polls, uh, there are some polls which have very poor methodology saying that a civil war is nigh, causes the other side to feel defensive. And then it ratchets up into what Amanda Ripley calls high conflict. Do you notice these trends and do you worry about them? Yes, and yes, and I'm so glad you brought this up because um, I think there are there are two um, things that we should worry about. We should worry about um, being too complacent about um, uh, you know the the, um, the the state of our our country um, and our risk of political violence. Um, we were in that state prior to January sixth. You know, I, I we've had these data for many, many years. Um, people like me and 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 others have been talking about this sort of growing cancer um, on the far right for for years. And until January sixth, we got no traction. People looked at us like we were crazy. So in some respects, January sixth, I think, was a gift to the American public. Um, <clears throat> and to our, our our political leaders 
um, that, you know, we really do have a problem and, and we can't ignore it. And if we, um, you know, keep our heads in the sand, um, it's not going to go away. And, and in fact, you know, violent extremists in, in countries around the world are hoping that people will ignore them because it gives them time to, to grow. But there is absolutely a risk of going too far in the other direction of, um, you know, uh, just feeling like civil war is, is imminent and, and the threat is everywhere. Um, in political science, we actually call it the security dilemma, and it can be quite dangerous as well. And the security dilemma is a situation where nobody wants war. For the most part, most people don't want war, but they, there's a sense of fear and a sense of threat. Um, and, and so if, if you think that you and your family <clears throat> might, um, come under attack, you take measures to protect yourself. So you start buying, buying guns. Um, and then the group th- that, um, you know, you feel is a threat to you, they're looking at you and they're seeing you buy guns. This makes them, um, feel threatened as well. They escalate as well. You observe this, you escalate, and it's this spiral dyna- dynamic that could lead a country unnecessarily to to war. Um, and so uh, it is important to say that we are not on the verge of civil war. We're actually in a spot that's where where we understand the conditions that make us vulnerable for war. We have time to do something about it. Um, that's where we should be focusing our energies. We should not be focusing our energies on, on you know, how are we going to how are we going to fight a battle if it actually does um, emerge? So thank you for bringing that up. Barbara F. Walter is a political scientist. In fact, the Rohr Professor of International Affairs at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. She is the author of How Civil Wars Start and, important subtitle, How to Stop Them. Thank you very much, Professor Walter. It's my pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me on. And now the spiel. Think about how much the implications of mass protest have changed, what it means to hear about a mass protest taking place somewhere in the world or maybe down your street. So from the civil rights era through the fall of communism, mass protests were mostly harbingers of change and signs of power, people power, democracy and its true meaning in action. There's, of course, caveats to all of this. The civil rights era drew from Gandhi's pacifism. Uh, Gandhi and his civil disobedience predated that and gave MLK his inspirations, but it wasn't widely known to Americans. It didn't dominate our consciousness. So I could have started the clock a little sooner than the civil rights era. And of course, there were many protests that went nowhere uh, during the fall of communism. And the fall of communism didn't breathe into the world new democracies with the flourishing of personal freedoms. All that is true. There were unrighteous protests along the way too, you know, draft riots, there were failed protests, the Whiskey Rebellion. But mass protests, people taking to the streets 
was generally exciting, inspiring, and marked by the masses expressing their will. It had about it the whiff of change and progress. But now I look at the protests around the world and so few fall into the category of brave, inspiring, righteously motivated, and likely to affect a positive change. Big exception may be in Iran, which it's very hard to judge how firm a grasp on a an authoritarian regime actually has in a country, but Iran is experiencing the widest protests in the country's history. We can hope that the protests, which were set off by the killing of 22-year-old Masa Amini two and a half months ago, we can hope that there were some cracks in the regime. Maybe it won't be. If nothing else, a message has been sent to the morality police, the Ayatollahs. But look at Iran's neighbor, Syria. Protests there were part of the Arab Spring, seemed to offer a glimpse of hope that the House of Assad might crumble. No. Instead, a civil war has killed about half a million people, displaced 7 million within Syria, and another 7 million or so have had to flee the country's borders. Borders which shifted by maybe a few feet, came to be run by rebel groups, which included ISIS. Borders which are still firmly ruled by Assad. The change augured by protests mostly tragic for the protesters. Crushed rebellion is no exception in the history of Syria, but a survey of the Arab Spring offers not much of a different picture in the whole region. Gaddafi was deposed, sure, that country is in horrible straits right now. Egypt replaced one strong man with another, killed dozens of people that we know about along the way. Bahrain, similarly, the protests went nowhere. The protesters went to jail. Even Tunisia, the one country said to have reformed a little bit because of mass protests, which were occasioned by this new miracle of social media. Uh, Tunisia today looks a lot like a typical Instagram post. Take away the gauzy filter and the poses, and you will see that the picture underneath is unsettled and far from clear. If the Arab Spring never happened, how much better off or worse off would the world be? You can't definitively say. There's a case to be made that the al-Sisi regime is an improvement on Mubarak, even with all the arrests and the jailings, or that upheavals would have happened in any case. But taken as a whole, there's an equally good case that had a Tunisian fruit vendor never self-immolated and had the resulting protests never spread, we'd have a more stable world and more people in it, or at least fewer people having lost their lives because of the protests. I'm open to all the shades of interpretation in between, but again, going back, most of my life, a mass protest, yeah, it had its ambiguities, but if they were massive enough and those protests led to change, then for the most part, the change was a net positive, for the most part. The Iranian revolution maybe was not, although the Iranians would say it is or was up until September of this year. And let's take China right now. No protests of this scale demanding political reforms have been seen since the Tiananmen pro-democracy protests in 1989 that led to a massacre of unarmed protesters. CNN's Selena Wang gives us a sense of the size of the protest, a hint at one possible outcome if passed is prologue. But I'm more interested in this angle. Are the people there right to protest? Well, they are oppressed. Their actions are restricted. The government is emphasizing the importance of COVID safety over personal freedom. So because it's China, we say those protests are a good thing and they're inspiring. But take all those circumstances and apply them to the COVID protest in the United States. 
many of us were thinking of the protesters as deranged. Now, there's an obvious counterpoint that in the U.S., we didn't have to put up with massive overhauls of our lifestyle on a pretty permanent basis. All of our lockdowns were not so much imposed, but decided by elected officials who weren't being lied to and denied information of all sorts. Though the protesters would disagree with everything I said. I I don't want to just engage in whataboutism. I do think the U.S. anti-COVID protests, the early ones that claim vaccines were deadlier than COVID, were massive overreactions. And I do think that these citizens in China are certainly being denied their rights. But it's a little more complicated than Tiananmen Square, isn't it? As is Canada, where truckers were in the wrong to shut down Ottawa over vaccine mandates. But Justin Trudeau has in the last few days been made to answer quite legitimate questions as part of the Public Order Emergency Commission. The act compelled tow truck companies to remove big rigs blocking streets. And banks to freeze $8 million in funds from nearly 300 accounts. The CBC reporting there on the consequences of Trudeau's invocation of the Emergencies Act for the first time since it became law in 1988. Eva Krajewska, counsel for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, questioned Trudeau under oath. You very publicly say to the police, these are tools that you now have, that you are publicly signaling, this is the road we want you to walk down now and and use these tools in order to deal with these demonstrators. Do you agree with that? Um, We were very clearly saying um, that we need uh, to restore enforcement of the law and we need to restore public order. I side with Trudeau over the protesters. But the reaction was literally unprecedented, and it's another example of a mass protest being more troubling than electrifying. So was the government's response. Mass protests never simply were just for the good, but mass protests against autocracies, even those don't cleanly augur for freedom anymore. In Hong Kong, they protested against China, and those protesters lost what freedoms they had. Not that quiescence would have been guaranteed to keep the CCP at bay, but there was a confrontational attitude, especially among the protesters, that may have just prompted the mainland into more of a crackdown. Again, protesters working as something other than righteous cracks in the system or a sign of openness or a reason to hope. Hong Kong may just have protested themselves into submission. I could be wrong. I'm willing to hear from smarter people than I saying that that particular crackdown in Hong Kong was inevitable or my overall interpretation was wrong. Protests are mostly signs of hope. But there was no joyous outcome in Hong Kong. There was no dancing on the Berlin Wall. People power these days seems more imbued with ambivalence than at any time it can remember. Or to be less pessimistic, maybe it is true that the arc of history that we're all told bends towards justice, it's just arcing very slowly. It's lost over the horizon, but good things are coming. I hope for the Chinese and the Iranians, that is the right way to look at it. And that's it for today's show on this November 29th. Wait, it ends in a nine. Can we even trust it? Corey Warr is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. Listen to Not Even Mad tomorrow, early morning, early, early in your podcast feed, 9, 10, somewhere around then. That's not so early. Your day has started. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dooperu, and thanks for listening.